us that comes uh, into a service as believers, we come with some sort of battle that's going on. Um, some of you are battling stuff with your financial life. Some of you are battling stuff relationally. Maybe something at work is troubling you. Maybe just something in your own personal life that seems disconnected. And it was Irenaeus, he's a second century uh, church father who made the statement that this is a soul forming world. In other words, this is a world in which we get the opportunity to face struggle. And as a result, learning how to walk through it strengthens who we are as people. And that he also said the glory of God is to be fully human, a person fully, uh, fully alive. So the idea of us growing as human beings is so critical. And God isn't trying to prevent us from ever bumping into stuff that's difficult. But the fact is, when we have struggle, we get distracted by it. And that's one of the reasons when we come to the to gather, we have to intentionally uh, push back the distractions. And part of what Sabbath is about, the idea of Sabbath rest is about, is to sort of push back all the things that are vying for your attention, that are troubling you. And you stop and you say, I'm going to just cast this off to God. And I want to come and just be open to what I might hear that might in some way change the way in which I'm approaching these things and help me to strengthen as a human being and as a person of faith. So as we come this morning to the text, Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Don't just sit and with the distractions and make something come through at you. Just learn to open your heart and to expect that the Spirit will say something to you. It might not even be something that the speaker says. It might be something the speaker infers or the speaker says something and the Holy Spirit grabs that and takes you down another little rabbit trail. That's the way God manifests himself. The word manifestation in Latin means the dancing of the hands. And what we want and invite God to do is in our services is to dance. And to dance and to touch one this way, touch one that way, touch one another way. So let's for just a moment open yourself up Maybe sit up a little straight, close your eyes, and bring yourself to this moment. Be fully present in this moment. Don't let things distract you. The wars, the stuff that are in your heart or mind or life, just let them lose their edge right now for just a moment. Cast those off right away. Whether you come full of faith, hope, or whether you come full of doubt, a sense of dread, just bring that here in this moment. Lord, help us hear. Amen. This morning, I want to focus our attention on the, the implications of the resurrection in our personal lives and in our life together as a community. The Christian claim is that Jesus died and that he came back from death. <laughs> I was doing a catechism class in New York City pretty recently with, I don't know, eight, seven and eight-year-olds. <laughs> I like to get in the room with younger people because they're just so honest <laughs> and uh, not taken with who you are, right? And uh, so I'm going through the Apostles' Creed, get to the part of the Creed where he died, uh, you know, he suffered in a punch, probably was crucified, died, and was buried. He, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And this little guy's hand shot up. I said, yeah, Jesus was dead, and he raised from the dead? Yeah. 
I said, yeah. And he goes, is Jesus a zombie? <laughs> a little irritated. No, he's not a zombie. <laughs> but, but it does show just how odd this claim is. That Jesus came back from death. According to the gospel writers, Jesus hangs around after the resurrection, appearing, disappearing in front of the disciples. Sometimes they recognize him. Initially, a lot of times they don't, and then they finally do. In a, in a, and we have these post-resurrection sort of vignettes in the Gospels. Our reading today is about the story of, the, of going fishing and how Jesus shows up on the, on the shore. You remember in the Gospel, it says they didn't know it was the Lord at first, right? Um, is an example. This is just an example of the kind of stories that were going on. A after that, he, he ascends into the dimension that we refer to as heaven. That's in Acts 1. It says on one occasion, while he was eating with them, this is after the resurrection, which is also crazy, that he was eating with his resurrection body, which is good news for me because I enjoy eating. <laughs> and he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of Pentecost that we'll celebrate in a few days here. And then in verse 9, it says, after he said this, he was taken up. That's the ascension. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. See, the scripture claims that Jesus Christ is still alive in that dimension. That at this moment, he continues to be active as our Savior. Romans refers to this in Romans 8. It says, who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, current tense, present tense, and is also interceding for us. See, he's alive in some dimension, actively attending to us, to you, aware of you, aware of your struggle, aware of the places you need grace to connect the dots and to, to steer more into human growth and flourishing than into human disorder. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus' ministry, current ministry, right now his ministry to us. It says, therefore we have this great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to this faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he absolutely sympathizes with your weakness. He's not mad at you for not being perfect. He gets that you're a toad. He says, yet, he said, let us then, because we know he sympathizes with us, because he gets us, because he was part of us. Let us then approach the throne of grace, that's the throne of, of favor, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what these things are about, these gatherings, our prayers, coming to the table. It's all about receiving grace to help us. What? To reorient our thinking, to make it through the battles we face so that our souls become formed in ways that glorify God and make life rich and full. The life that's more abundant is how Jesus described it. Another striking idea about this business of resurrection and death 
that began to emerge in the early church was that they understood that what Jesus Christ did, he didn't just do or really do it for himself. They began to understand that when Jesus entered into death, he was entering it for us, for humanity. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, technically, God was raising the whole human race out of the dominion of death. It was opening the way for all peoples of all times to experience life and help from heaven. In Romans 4, it says, he, Jesus, was delivered to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, in other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus was ours in the mind of God. In Colossians 1, Paul claims, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church, and he, Jesus, is the beginning and the firstborn. If there's a firstborn, there's a secondborn, there's a thirdborn. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is the firstborn of many to follow in the final resurrection. But his coming out of the entering death was to enter into our Death, as it were, and coming out of it was for us to have a way out of the things that want to destroy us. Listen to how Paul describes the mechanics of this. This is in Romans 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him. See, he's in it, we're in it. Through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father and we come out of the water, we too may have new life, resurrection. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified, see the language of whatever happened to him is happening to us, crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer have to be slaves to disordered living, sin, selfishness, disordered love. Because anyone who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that also we will live with him. See that correlation of whatever happened to him happens to us. The way the church imagined folks connecting with Christ's death and with Christ's resurrection was in the, this, this business of water baptism. It, was, it became for the church what we call a sacrament. And Romans 6 is baptismal language. Uh, the belief of the church in the earliest centuries was that baptism somehow connected us with Christ's death and with Christ's resurrection. And it was believed that the baptismal vow, which was really just a commitment to the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, etc. It was believed that, that was like a marriage vow that secured a marriage that somehow when they said this vow and they entered into the waters of baptism, it secured this union with God. It involved private faith conversion, but also a public journeying of faith to the community of faith because it was done with others. So it was both a me and an us thing, just like marriage, you don't marry yourself. <laughs> you're married to a person. <laughs> so you're married and you're married to this other. Faith was always imagined to be not just your personal commitment, but your personal connection to the church. Uh, it was only after the Middle Ages when the church got funky that uh, it, this, this connecting work of Christ devolved into just being a private matter. Have you received Jesus as your Savior became the central issue? Certainly it is a central issue. But 
baptism then became an option. It wasn't a place where those kinds of things connected. In a real way, if you think about the early church, they would think of, of you making a commitment to Christ, to follow Christ personally would be like you becoming engaged, right? And then when you go to the marriage moment and you open yourself up to that vow is when you're technically married, right? So in a way you're married before you're, but you're, you're not fully, it's not consummated, it's not finished. So that's the way they thought about baptism. Well, for us as Protestants particularly, it's almost as if baptism is an option, right? And so we miss some of the language and some of the intent of what the early church had. They even believed as, that as parents, they could stand for a child uh, until he or she, um, uh, you know, if they were being baptized, and it started all the way back to the first century, they would baptize these children because they wanted their kids to be connected to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they thought that because a child doesn't have the cognitive ability that the parents could stand and, and stand and confess the baptismal vow for the child with the anticipation that as that child grew, they would come to a point that they could grasp its implications and make their personal commitment to it. So that's how that infant baptism thing got started. It was all because they all thought, man, that baptism thing is a cool deal. What's so beautiful in Christian theology is that it holds that the work of salvation, this, this idea of being connected with Christ, causes a co-mingling of the soul and the mind and the heart of the baptized believer with God. Uh, this means that resurrection is not just about, or this whole idea of being out with Christ is not just about him being there and us being here and he's attending to us. It's certainly that. But it's more. Somehow, through the resurrection, he's found a way by the Spirit to be actually in us, to be commingled with us in some way, that we become these little temples of God, little port temples <laughs> of God that go around the world, right? Uh, Paul says that this, this is Colossians 1. I have become the servant of the gospel by commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Here's the mystery. To them, to the saints, to you, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this amazing mystery. What's the mystery? Which is Christ in you. In other words, he's not just sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting in your midst. He's sitting in your life. This is the hope of glory. Do you remember the scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we fall short of the way God intended human beings to live with graciousness and kindness and love and, and those kinds of issues, commitment to each other that, that endure. He, he said that we, we've, we've sinned, we failed, and we fell short of the glory. Well, what's the hope of glory? What's the hope of getting back what we lost? It's Christ in you. Somehow this idea compels us to understand that, that the issue here is not us performing for Christ, but us being open to a Christ who's in us, who will perform in us. He goes on, Paul goes on, we proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, he says, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. <laughs> so he basically is saying, everything I've even doing, I'm, I'm sensing this commingling. Somehow God is in me, messing with me, messing with my want to. The energy that I have. It's not just about me 
you know, WWF Wrestling for Christ, you know, I'm going to do this, right? It's not me doing it. It's me being open to a Christ who's indwelling me and learning how to connect with him. And when I do, I feel this wind in my sails where there was no wind. This ability where there was no ability. So Christianity then isn't my responsibility. It's a response to God's ability. Peter builds on this idea that there's some sort of a co-mingling with the very nature of God with the human life. After the resurrection, this opened the door for that. It was a mystery. It was hidden. Peter built, says in 2 Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness so that through these, his glory and his goodness, he has given to us very great and precious promises so that through his promises, we might participate in the divine nature. <laughs> That's crazy talk right there. We might participate in the divine nature participate, play with, be in the midst of God's very nature. Somehow we partake of his very nature. It was Jesus who introduced the language of divine union in making statements like this from John 10. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then he extends this kind of unity language with the disciples who by extension is us. And he says in John 14, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. We participate. This idea is deeply present in the mystic tradition of Christianity. Mystic tradition means that's when people speak of personal encounters with God and of a sense of union with God. We're not just confessional. We're not just saying we believe this and we just say we believe this. I mean, you can just do that. But we're also saying, yes, we do have confession of faith, but we're also in this thing and we're having encounters with the holy. And it's more than just words. It's pre-theoretical. It's pre-cognitive. It's pre-rational. Somehow I'm encountering, it's like Moses stumbling onto the burning bush. What was that? Was it the bush? Was it the fire? It was more than the bush and the fire. He was in, and he knew he had to take his shoes off. There was something strange and scary and momentous about this encounter. What was that? See, that's what happens with God. We don't always know. I don't know when those moments are. For a lot of us, it's not like that happens every day, but there are moments that have happened where we've encountered the holy. We're going, holy, holy. <laughs> you know, like, what, what was that? On some level, it's a whole new epistemic reality. It's a whole new level of understanding that we've encountered someone other than ourselves that we only go, holy, holy, holy. Right? The mystic tradition. This tradition is nodded to in the Psalms, Psalm 82, 6. The psalmist says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. You read a text like that and you kind of go, I don't know what that means. You go on. But then Jesus resources this text. And he says in John 10, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. What in the world does that mean? The fourth century church father, Athanasius, said provocatively, quote, God became man that man might become God. 
What does that mean? See, this was never imagined to be that we become God in some equal or replacing way. But it's speaking of a union that occurs in salvation that is such a deep sharing of life that it makes it hard to tell who's who. Right? I, the best example I give of that is I remember when I was, you know, we were raised four children. Now we have eight grandchildren. It's so much easier. You know what? Just, if we could have just gone to grandchildren, I would have chosen that route. You know, when you're raising these ingrates. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> I loved our kids. But anyway, the point is, uh, there were times, you know, when you're in the thick of it. You know, when they're young and life is just rumbling and, and you know, I was busy with my life and, and then I would come home and then Gail had been busy with her life, which seemed to be more busy than my life. And those kids had their, and you just, it's like going into a, into a, a storm. And I remember there'd be days I'd pull into the garage, I kid you not, and I pull into the garage and I think, oh man, I do not want to go in there. <laughs> the cyclone, I don't want to go in there. And I remember that I learned a simple prayer. I put the car in park, turn it off, and I sit in the garage for just a moment. And I say, Father, I'm spent. I have no, I don't have any give in me, really. I've, this day was crazy. Yeah, so there's some days when you work that, you know, you feel like you're a, in the birds movie. That's an old cultural reference, you know, where you, I, the birds are picking on you. <laughs> there's some days you come and go, I don't think I can see. I have no eyes. The birds have been here. But anyway. <laughs> so if you never saw the movie, it's Hitchcock deal. It's, never mind. Anyway. I'd sit there and say, Lord, I feel I, I just have no capacity. But here's the deal. Would you love through me? And would you be patient through me? And would you help me to give where Gil needs some gifts and help me engage with these kids? I just, I don't have it in me, but I'm, but I, I'm asking you to help me. I'd get out of the car and walk in, and to my surprise, I'd start being a little more kind, a little more giving, a little more something. And I remember in those moments thinking to myself, well, what's going on here? Is this me? Is this God? What's happening here? And, and, and the only answer I could ever come up with to that, is it me or is this God, was yes. <laughs> it's us somehow intermingling, somehow connecting so that I'm, I'm, I'm always just creature. But somehow when you understand how you can be connected to God and you start sharing and commingling, it's, it's you're not just creature. This kind of union should never be confused to mean that our union with the divine ever means we become divine. Back in the 13th century, Meister Eckhart wrote about this mystical union with God, this co-mingling of the human and the divine. And he wrote of the experience and he explains that even in the language of union, though it's accurate, he says, quote, God has left a little point wherein the soul turns back on itself and finds itself and knows itself to be creature." So even in this commingling and you're, you're experiencing God and his presence is real and somehow it's growing in you, there's always a point at which you go and stop and turn back on yourself and say, yeah, I'm, I'm just creature. I'm just, I'm just lucky. God's in my soul. <laughs> in the midst of deep connection of commingling, we must never confuse ourselves as being God. I'm whistling him behind that. 
And we must always remember that this union causes neither the loss of ourselves nor our being being converted into the divine. But we also understand that... No, that's okay. We'll just keep moving. We also understand that in the midst of this deep connection, there's confusion to some degree because there's something going on that's not explainable. There's just a deep inadequacy of language to be able to communicate what is really going on. What is really going on is some kind of profound mystery that is the genesis of a new kind of reality, and we must always remain creature, but we are something more. You know what the Orthodox Church calls this thing we're talking about? Deification. They, they call it this idea that somehow divine is emerging in the human heart. The end game of such a claim as this is that believers are to reflect the risen Christ into the context in which they live. That's your calling. It's reminiscent of what God said to Moses in Exodus 7.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What if that's your true calling? To be like God to your family, to your friends, to those you work with or live by. What if we're to show folks who connect with us the Christ who is alive, who's been resurrected? That would mean that faith isn't just about being a conservative or about being cogent in your theological argumentation. It's not even about getting people to pray the sinner's prayer, even though those things are good. What if it's all about showing God to people? What if it's about being living proof of the resurrection? What if it's about being God to our world? What is that supposed to look like? How do we practice being God to the world? What a crazy statement. We could go all kinds of directions here, but I just want to settle and close on one. 1 John 4.16 and we know and rely on the love of God, that the love, of, that the love God has for us. God is love. Everybody say that. God is love. Think about that. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. That commingling. We are God to people when we become loving persons. Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God. Why? Because we're representing him. Therefore, as dearly beloved children and live a life of love, just as he describes it, just as Christ loved us and watch, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice that the language of love here is centered around sacrifice. He is not talking about being feely loved to people. He's, even though love has feelings. He's not talking about doing everything everyone wants around you as loving. Love sometimes disrupts, sometimes doesn't give, sometimes disappoints. Because love isn't about doing what people want. Love is about doing what's best for the person. Sometimes that means doing things for them that they love, like being supportive, not judgy, always believing the best of them, helping them. But other times it means doing things that they hate holding them accountable, confronting them, requiring certain actions, even turning from them when they're being destructive to you or to others or to themselves. It's not easy to be a loving person 
The pattern set out by Jesus proves that. To live a life of love, he says, just as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? How did that ark of love look? We know it because we just walked through it. It started at Gethsemane, where Jesus cries out, not my will, but thine. That sucks. Because I want my will. Not anybody else's. I mean, let's be honest here. This isn't a thing we do naturally. I want what I want, but to stop and say, you know what? If I'm going to be God to the world, I must say, not my will be done. That's why we pray that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. That's what I want. I'm, I'm, I'm going into Gethsemane right at the start. And then it's to the cross. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Cross is about being willing to not react to rejection and insult and the best that hell throws at you and to not utter threats and to not rebel, just to press to do what's right, even if it looks like it's going to kill you. And then he dies looking to God. And then resurrection happens. That's the pattern of love that we must embrace if we want to reflect God. Gethsemane surrender, crosses, and a death of some kind while we look at God waiting for him to react or respond to bring life out of that place of death. Resurrection is not about personal victory for you over others. It's not about, it's not so that you can avoid struggle. That's not what resurrection is about. Many think the pattern of resurrection life is no Gethsemane needed. Jesus did it. There's no cross needed. Jesus took care of that. No death required. We don't have to undergo that. Let's just get into that new life stuff. But Jesus' resurrection does not give you a Gethsemane-less, cross-less, death-less faith. It doesn't. The God who is love chose Gethsemane. The God who is love embraced the cross. The God who is love run, ran smack into the teeth of death. And then he came out of it. We look like God when we are that kind of faithful to those who touch our lives. This is why we forgive. This is why we move towards people who are painful and gnarly. People we'd rather avoid. People who have filled our hearts with offense. We still move toward them. Not just without cause or without pause and without attention and you're not supposed to let people hurt you that's not it but we should never write people off and it's hard not to we do this is because that's what god is like he's always the one who moves toward the pain of the world to help bring it into resurrection here's what i hear the spirit saying to us see i have made you like god to those whose life you touch Be God to them.